Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 261, The Sack. Last time, Constantinople fell to the forces of the Fourth Crusade. Since we'd covered so much ground already, I stopped short of describing the actual sack of the city. Today, though, we will go into detail about how people were treated and the precious items which were stolen or destroyed. As sad a story as I think this is, I often find on the internet that the sack of Constantinople is described as a crime against humanity, or one of the greatest tragedies in human history, or words to that effect. I don't think that's the case. Many great cities have fallen over the centuries, and as special as New Rome is to us, I think those statements go too far. I should say, though, that in both today's episode and our next one, I will be talking about sexual assault and enslavement in some detail, so keep this away from sensitive ears. The sack of any city is a horrible affair. There's no doubt that innocent men were murdered and tortured, and that women were raped. It might seem futile after that sentence to claim that one sack is worse than another, but I'm afraid they are. The Latin capture of Constantinople was far more genteel than most of the sackings which the Romans handed out in their heyday. Why was this? Before the final battle, the Crusaders went through various religious services to cleanse them of sin. During these proceedings, the men all swore an oath to abstain from sexual assaults and attacks on religious buildings and priests. Many broke these promises, particularly when it came to attacking church property, but these oaths and the fact that this was ultimately a pilgrimage did have a restraining effect on men's behaviour. Three other factors helped curtail the violence. First, the Romans had surrendered. There was no formal resistance anymore. When the Latins first broke into the city, they killed anyone they found, because this was war, and they had to do whatever it took to gain a foothold inside the walls. But now that the fighting was over, the Latins could plunder the physical contents of the city without the slaughter that often accompanies a sack. Second, Easter was approaching. Traditionally, generals allowed their men a certain period of time to ransack an enemy city before restoring discipline. A few days after entering Constantinople, it happened to be Palm Sunday which gave the leaders and priests a natural excuse to bring everyone to heel. 
Finally, the Latins intended to stay and take over the Roman state. So the two imperial palaces were left in good condition and those inside were protected. The infrastructure of the city was also untouched. And though the people were terrorised, they were now the Crusaders' subjects rather than their slaves. Most of them, anyway. Nikitas Coniates is the only source who mentions the crimes perpetrated against the Roman people. Understandably, the Latin writers don't dwell on it. Though neither, really, does Coniates. Though he dedicates pages and pages to a lament for the loss of the city, I'd characterise that as a lament for the fall of Roman civilization, rather than for the suffering of those living in the city. He says that priests were robbed and churches ransacked. He says that people were beaten, humiliated, raped and enslaved. He also says that the Latins did not spare nuns from their attention. Which may be true, but the rape of nuns is something which is mentioned in almost every single description of the sack of Roman cities across Byzantine history. To the point where you wonder if it's just a literary convention used because of the unique horror of the thought. I have no desire to be an apologist for the men of the Fourth Crusade, but the rest of Coniates' text reveals a very different kind of sack than what we might expect. Obviously the Latins went door to door demanding people hand over any possessions of value, and those who refused were treated poorly. But he acknowledges that those who handed it over were left alone and that after a few days, anyone who wanted to leave the city was allowed to do so. They would be inspected as they passed by, to see if they were trying to sneak anything shiny out with them, but otherwise they were free to go. Coniates was a rich man in his late forties by this point. He had a large home in the city, where his extended family gathered as the Latins ran amok. Nikitas also had a good friend, a Venetian wine merchant, who came to his aid. This man bravely put on armour and stood outside the house, warding off looters by saying that he had claimed this house for himself. The ruse could only last for so long, though. After a few days, the whole household moved to another Venetian residence to avoid detection. In the night, all of their slaves abandoned them. Afraid that their whereabouts would be revealed, they made the decision to leave the city. The next morning they tiptoed out onto the streets and headed for the land walls. They were a particularly vulnerable group. There were no young men amongst them, and they had to carry a small child and a baby in their arms. Coniates' own wife was also pregnant. The only physical item of value they carried was the manuscript of Nikitas's unfinished history. They adopted a sort of formation with the most vulnerable amongst them in the centre of the group, and they rubbed dirt on the faces of the young women to try and disguise their beauty. As they made their way towards the Golden Gate, a soldier spotted one of the girls and dragged her away. She was the daughter of a judge who was knocked to the ground as he tried to intervene. He called out to Coniates to do something. Nikitas abandoned the group and chased after the soldier who was dragging this young woman away. 
Without hope of intervening himself, Coniates called out to some passing Latin troops. He implored them to help, reminding them of the oaths they had taken. Since this was after the period of looting, these men were fully in control of their faculties and responded to the call. The abductor had taken the girl to a home which he'd occupied and was standing at the door to ward them off, but they threatened to kill him if he didn't stand down, so he released the girl back to Coniates, who thanked the men and hurriedly escaped the city. So from Coniates' own history, we hear a story whose happy ending is entirely down to Latin chivalry. Of course, it also features a man taking a woman away to a life of slavery, but it fits with the Crusader accounts, where we hear of several soldiers who were hung for disobeying the order to stop looting. Another story comes from a Byzantine nobleman called John Masaretes, who had taken holy orders and resided at the monastery of St. George of Mangana. He was living an ascetic life, and when the Crusaders burst in, he refused to respond to them, saying nothing in the face of their threats. This greatly impressed the Latin lord who took over the building. He left John in peace, and John's writing reveals that several other members of his family survived after taking refuge in the Hagia Sophia. So, clearly, the Crusaders were acting with far more restraint than the vast majority of conquering armies across history. That doesn't make the sack of the city any less sad, but if you imagined Constantinople being reduced to a pit of mindless violence, then think again. Just to follow Coniates a bit further, his party made their way to Salimbria, a town in Thrace, as they traipsed through the countryside, their once fine clothes covered in dirt, they were mocked by the locals. Several farmers called out to them, asking how it felt to be poor now, and generally rubbing their nose in their predicament. Nikitas noted with bitterness that these people had not yet been subjected to Latin rule, and would soon change their tune. At Salimbria, an exile community formed where Coniates lived for two years. His connections seemed to have kept him fed, and he was able to follow the news and continue his history. He would return to Constantinople briefly in 1206 AD. We'll hear more about him when the narrative resumes. Back to the city then. Coniates complains, understandably, about the despoiling of churches. Despite their vows, I'm pretty sure all the Latins understood that churches would be targeted. Many of the Crusaders had visited Constantinople during the period when Alexius Angelos was in charge. They had seen the riches which Byzantine churches hoarded, the gold vessels used in services, the expensive cloths covering the altar, icons framed with silver. Sanctity was not going to save these places. The Latins were told by their own priests that the Byzantines were schismatics and did not deserve the richly adorned churches which they worshipped incorrectly in. The greatest prize of all was the Hagia Sophia. Coniates describes at length the dismantling of the expensive church furnishings which sat proudly in the Cathedral of Orthodoxy. The altar was an astonishing object, made from a variety of precious metals fused together and studded with jewels. It was pulled apart so that its wealth could be divided amongst the conquerors. 
The ciborium, or canopy, which stood over it, was solid silver. The altar screen and ambo, or pulpit, were both covered in silver and gold plate. Between these furnishings and the vast collection of liturgical vessels, the Hagia Sophia yielded a rich harvest. The crusaders brought in pack animals and carts to remove all the precious metal. Nikitas bemoans the excrement which covered the marble floors, along with blood when one animal tipped over. He also claims that a prostitute sat on the patriarch's throne and did a lewd dance for the amusement of her employers. Meanwhile, over at the monastery of the Pantocrator, where John and Manuel Komnenos were buried, dozens of relics had been stored for safety. While the rank and file were hacking away at the gold and silver, a French abbot named Martin decided to protect these valuable relics by removing them all to his ship. His biographer details how he intimidated the aged clergy of the monastery, making them show him the relics and identifying them. Then he and his subordinates wrapped them up in their habits and fled for the harbour. Down the road at the Holy Apostles, the tombs of the Byzantine emperors were thrown open and picked clean. Corniates says that they found gold ornaments, pearls and gems amongst the skeletons. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because it was Corniates who told us that back in 1197, Alexius Angelos Komnenos had ransacked the mausoleums in order to find the cash to pay off Henry VI when he demanded that the Romans fund his trip to Jerusalem. Clearly the former emperor had not actually needed to empty the sarcophagi of all their treasures. Nikitas also says that when the Latins opened Justinian's resting place, they were shocked to find that he had not fully decomposed, but that they ignored this miracle and robbed him anyway. I'm not aware that the Romans attempted to preserve their dead like this, so I assume this is just a story to indicate the Latins' lack of care for either the living or the dead. All this loot was meant to be gathered in a central location and distributed according to the agreements made before the siege, though some sources claim that individual crusaders kept back plenty for themselves. Based on what we're told, the total loot may have added up to 400,000 or even 500,000 marks, far more than Alexius Angelos had promised to pay, but as I said at the time, what price were you really paying by tearing your own churches apart to appease your so-called allies? The money was divided equally between the Latins and Venetians, but the doge Enrico Dandolo made sure that he got every penny he was owed first. After stripping the city of all its earthly wealth, the Latins turned to its spiritual treasures. Abbot Martin was not the only one who had an eye for relics. Constantinople was a storehouse of Christian superheroes. The bones of saints and martyrs had been requisitioned over the centuries and housed in churches across the length of the metropolis. Stories were often told of the miracles which these relics performed and the protection which they offered the city. Now, though, these special items were free to be wrenched from their homes, since the crusader victory proved the Byzantines unworthy to possess them. Over the next few years, the Latins would send a stream of religious items home, 
Some saints' bones were taken to churches dedicated to them in Western Europe, while others were gifted to monasteries and other patrons who had supported the Latins in their quest. Bishop Conrad of Halberstadt returned home with a drop of Christ's blood, a fragment from the true cross, as well as the skull and elbow of St. Stephen. Bishop Nivelon of Soissons took home pieces from St. Thomas, St. John and St. Mark, as well as a belt which had belonged to the Virgin Mary and the staff of Moses. Enrico Dandolo sent home some of Christ's blood, the arm of St. George, a piece of St. John the Baptist's skull, and the bodies of St. Lucy and St. Agatha. Baldwin of Flanders sent to the Pope another drop of Christ's blood and a piece of the true cross. Then he sent the King of France Christ's suckling clothes, some of his hair, the purple garment Jesus wore before Pontius Pilate, and a rib of the Apostle Philip. Peter Capuano, the papal legate, sent off pieces of St. James, St. Philip, St. Helen, and St. Victor to various places. The list goes on and on. The Latins were aware that such a list stretched credulity, so a great effort was made to authenticate these relics and to prove that their acquisition was justified. I forget, unfortunately, which scholar pointed this out, or if I mentioned this on the podcast before, but 99% of medieval people would have had no concept of BC and AD dates the way we do, or any sense of just how long ago Jesus lived, or how long before him Moses had walked the earth. So these claims around these bones and physical items seemed much more plausible than they do to us. What this list tells us is that Constantinople's antiquity was so impressive that the Latins fully believed they had conquered something special. The loss of so much spiritual treasure was a huge blow for Byzantium. I thought it was important to talk about these relics before we get to the famous statuary, which has drawn more historical attention. Since the loss of these items really would have been more distressing to the average Byzantine than the removal of a statue of Hercules. Many Romans went on pilgrimage to their capital to venerate the saints whose stories lit up their spiritual life. For someone living in the provinces, whose only image of a saint was a small icon in their local church, a visit to Constantinople would have been utterly magical. To see huge, beautifully painted frescoes or elaborate mosaics portraying these holy figures high above them, and then to kneel before their tomb, knowing that their bones were inside, was a transcendent experience. In the future, saints' relics will mysteriously reappear in the Roman capital, but for Coniates's generation there was a desperate sadness to see these guardians of orthodoxy disappear over the horizon. There's an interesting footnote to this story. In 2004, to mark the 800th anniversary of the sack, two relics were returned to Istanbul. Pope John Paul II presented the bones of John Chrysostom and Gregory Nazianzus, both 4th century bishops, to the Greek Orthodox Patriarch. You can see these relics in the Church of St. George in Istanbul, a regular stop on the History of Byzantium podcast tour. Even though the Pope gave these relics to the Orthodox as a gesture, 
of reconciliation, there was still wrangling about what the return meant. The Catholics were not willing to say that these were stolen items being returned to their rightful home. The handover was described as a return, not a restitution. Finally, then, we come to the famous statues which decorated the public squares of Constantinople. Coniates made a list of them at the end of his history. To a highly educated man like Nikitas, it was clear that these statues were priceless works of art. The craftsmanship which brought humans and animals to astonishing life had been lost long ago. Visitors to Constantinople would stand open-mouthed at these sometimes giant depictions of great men and myths frozen in action. It wasn't just the bones of dead men which seemed to possess supernatural powers. These statues regularly provoked wild superstitious reactions. On more than one occasion, the population of Constantinople demanded that a statue be toppled or defaced because rumour had spread that they were harbingers of doom. While down at the Hippodrome, the Spina, the dividing barrier down the centre of the racetrack, was littered with dozens of depictions of men and beasts. More than one foreign visitor speculated that these characters had once been alive and had been frozen in place by Roman magic. The loss of this statue collection is desperately sad. The sense of disappointment compounded by the fact that the Latins used their base metal simply to mint coins to pay their men. But we should caution against those who talk about this as a crime against humanity. Naturally, there is poignancy to this last collection of Greco-Roman art falling to the furnaces of medieval ignorance. But as much as we hate and regret the thought, we must ask ourselves how many famous works of art did the Romans destroy during their two millennia of dominance? The Christians had destroyed pagan temples for fun back in the 4th and 5th centuries, and of course most of the fabulous art decorating Constantinople was forcibly moved there by Constantine and his successors. Just because this was the last loss of great antique art does not make it any more tragic than those beautiful sculptures toppled by other armies across time. So, with that in perspective, what was lost? Coniates chose to record the statues which seemed to him to need to be recorded in prose now that their beauty was lost forever. He describes a giant statue of Hera, the wife of Zeus, which stood in the Forum of Constantine, claiming it took four oxen just to cart her head away. He bemoans the loss of a giant pyramid-like structure which lay to the west of the Forum, it was elaborately carved with images and had a weather vane on the top. From the Forum of Theodosius, the Latins melted down a huge equestrian statue of the Emperor Honorius, though Coniates didn't know who it was meant to be. Down at the Hippodrome, he mourns for the loss of a gigantic depiction of Hercules. He claims a man's belt could only just fit around the thumb of the greatest of the Greek heroes. Supposedly, the statue was the work of the famous sculptor Lysippus from the 4th century BC, 
but even if it wasn't, the work was of a similar quality. Across the spina of the Hippodrome, a string of impressive figures were lost. The most elaborate showed the Scylla attacking Odysseus's ship from the famous scene in the Odyssey. While the simple image of a man leading a donkey was supposedly commissioned by Augustus after the Battle of Actium. Another showed a hippopotamus fighting a crocodile, a staple of Egyptian art. While other animals included a she-wolf and an eagle, both prime images in Roman mythology, along with a sphinx, an elephant, and a man wrestling a lion. Nikitas also describes a beautiful statue of Helen of Troy, though modern scholars think it was Aphrodite. Finally, there were the humble charioteers of Constantinople who'd had their images recorded for posterity back in the 6th century. For more information on these, check out my Byzantine story about Porphyrius the charioteer. Of course, the most famous items taken from Constantinople are the ones which were not melted down and which survive today. Chief among them are a quartet of bronze horses yoked together, ready to pull a chariot in the races. This was not considered one of the great statues of antiquity. Coniates doesn't mention it. The reason they are famous, as I'm sure you know, is that the Venetians took them home and placed them on the façade above the porch of St. Mark's Basilica. While the Latins seem to have been primarily concerned with the material value of the statues, the Venetians had an eye on something grander. They would take all sorts of pieces home with them to triumphantly decorate St. Mark's Square. Attempting to turn it, it would seem, into their version of the Augusteon, the public square which separated the Hagia Sophia from the palace. If you visit that square today, you will be in a space which is as close to the grandeur of Constantinople as you're likely to find. The giant pillars erected there are an imitation of the columns which stood at the centre of Byzantine forums. Atop those pillars, and lining the side of the basilica, are pieces of statuary taken from elsewhere, including several pieces from Constantinople. The quadriga of horses have been taken indoors for preservation, and replicas now stand in their place. But at ground level, you can find several originals. On one corner of the façade of St. Mark's, you can see a group of four Roman soldiers embracing carved out of purple porphyry. Because of its colour, this particular marble was reserved for imperial statues. So it turns out that these hugging soldiers are actually emperors, more specifically the original tetrarchs, Diocletian, Maximian, Galerius and Constans. Diocletian's experiment in power sharing was captured in neat detail in a single block of marble which the Venetians found in the Philadelphion, a public square in the centre of Constantinople. The square seems to have been named after the statues. They were mistakenly thought to depict the sons of Constantine the Great embracing, hence Philadelphion, the place of brotherly love. Along the southern side of the church you will see two ornately decorated pillars standing a few metres away from the building. 
The so-called Pilastri Acritani, or Pillars of Acre, were actually taken from the Church of St. Polyuctus. This was the building which made Justinian jealous, and inspired him to make the Hagia Sophia as grand as it became. This church was in ruins by the time the Crusaders arrived, so they may have felt justified in pilfering its fabulous carved columns. Some capitals nearby are also from the 6th century church. Inside St. Mark's, the Pala de Oro, the altarpiece, seems to have been taken from the Comnenian church at the Pantocrato, while the treasury of St. Mark's filled up with liturgical vessels, icons and reliquaries taken from Byzantine churches, many now lost. Finally, someone took a giant statue of an emperor with them, removing it from one of the huge columns which sat at the centre of Roman forums. But the Vasilefs was lost at sea. The statue washed up on the shore near Barletta in southern Italy in 1309. It was then set up in the city and is known as the Colossus of Barletta. Scholars strongly suggest that the figure is Leo I, the 5th century emperor that we began this podcast with. Give it a Google if you want an idea of the kind of figures who once occupied the skyline of Constantinople. Of course, this list of famous items can't really do justice to what was lost in the sack of the city. Thousands of smaller items were pilfered, some the art or book collections of rich men, some the life savings of hard-working families. The experience of loss on multiple levels is what we're going to explore in our next episode. It won't be for the faint-hearted. We've now reached the end of this period of the narrative and the end of episodes which I recorded in advance in order to make sure that this part of the story came out once a week for you. For the end of the century tour, which we will now begin, we will return to the old way of doing things, as in I will release the episodes in real time as I produce them. So there will be a couple of weeks of silence while I wait for all your questions to come in, and that will help guide me as to which areas of research need attention. Do send any and all questions to thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com or at the website thehistoryofbyzantium.com or on any social media site and I will be back in a few weeks with some answers. I will also be doing live Zoom calls with those of you who support me over at Patreon. I think what I'll do is record an episode of the podcast or multiple episodes answering all your Fourth Crusade questions and uh, general Byzantine questions from this period. And then we'll have a couple of Zoom calls open to patrons so that you can uh, pick me up on uh, things I missed or uh, parts of your questions I misunderstood or just to fire back at me at general about this period. I think that will be a fun time. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash history of Byzantium if you'd like to join in the fun.